I am Joshua Albeza Brandstetter. I am a Filipino-American man living in Anchorage, Alaska, and I am a local filmmaker and photographer. I do a lot of documentary work throughout Alaska and was recently awarded a 2020 Rasmussen Foundation Fellowship for my documentary work with Absolute Zero, which is a visual arts and documentary project creating a voice and platform for survivors of abuse throughout Alaska. I am a graduate of Anchorage Christian Schools, and I graduated from ACS in 2005. And can you explain the controversy currently surrounding ACS? Yes. um, Inspired by the protests and the movement that just has sprung up across America in light of the deaths of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor. Conversations around the racism and abuse that BIPOC students of Anchorage Christian schools faced started to, it started to enter the conversation. And I hadn't myself thought a lot about it since I graduated. It's something that has affected me, but I kind of had pushed it to the back of my mind. But as I saw these Facebook posts emerging and people just sharing about everything they experienced, I realized that I had never reconciled what I had experienced. My my wife, Rochelle, she she was like, hey, I remember what you would always tell me. How I think you should reach out to these people that are that are speaking up. You guys could maybe be able to reconcile some of that. And so I started reaching out to the different alumni who were talking, who I saw in the con- in the conversations, and I realized that my experiences were were not outliers. I realized that my experiences were very common for a lot of minority students and back in june um when i when i became aware of this uh there were the the students were coming together we had there were 120 120 unique stories that came out 120 Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i realized wow i was definitely not alone that was back in june and since then, students began to organize and reaching out to each other, compiling these stories, trying to see these patterns and see what we can do about them, about dealing with them. And since then, there are now over 180 stories. And it's not just from Anchorage Christian schools, even. It's from other private schools like Grace Christian. And it's starting to become apparent that there is a systemic problem within the private school system in Alaska. What was it like for you to reach out to those other ACS alumni and realize that your story wasn't um, a standalone? Simply talking about it was, it gave a lot of catharsis, simply being able to share it and realizing that I'm not an outlier, I wasn't weird. 
that I was a victim of racism mm-hmm. and that it wasn't okay and that I wasn't wasn't alone. I was I was never alone was very comforting and very empowering and helped me to put a lot of my childhood and these events that influenced me during these formative years of my life into perspective. Do you know how long this has been going on at ACS? So I only knew of my experiences before. I knew that when I was, and this is, I know this has been covered in the Anchorage Daily News article, which I implore people to read. Um, I know that my experiences in the early 2000s were, that's what I had experience with. I knew what my coach called me. I knew what other students called me. I knew what my coach said to other students. I remember remember being called the N-word frequently. And when I explained that I'm not black, I'm Filipino, I remember being called flip-flop. I remember my coach telling a black student, I remember my coach telling a black student from across the locker room that he could smell him. I remember my coach asking an indigenous student if he liked muktuk in a derogatory, stereotypical accent, which many of us know. I remember those things being very commonplace, but I thought that was just when I was there. That's all I had experience with. When these stories started coming out, what became apparent to me was that, again, this is was a systemic issue. This was a legacy of racism and discrimination that had been buried and unaddressed and that that had spanned for at least 40 years some of the oldest stories that came out were from 1983 there was there was a an acs alumni that class of 83 who said he was a black student and he said that he was auctioned off for a fundraiser called slave for a day and it was just him it was only the black students that they auctioned off. And he that was in the in the 80s. And then we also had stories in the 2010s where there was there were students coming to Spirit Week, white students in blackface and no repercussions. And there's the selfies there. You can see them online, these selfies on campus. And there were no repercussions. There was no discussion around that. Getting back to the slave for a day situation. Do you have any more details on that? Like, what did it look like? The, um, well, I, I can't speak for that individual, but they did these testimonies and many others. I I believe there's well over a hundred on this platform alone, um, have been recorded on Instagram and been made available for anyone to see. Students have, they've created an Instagram platform. It's really professional. They put new stories up every day. They're, they have a way for people to submit the stories of their experiences. And it's called um, at a.christian.school. So a Christian school, and it's an Instagram page. And this person, uh, he, I believe he shared it in written form and he's spoken before in interviews and said that he was, it was a fundraiser that the school would do every year, an annual fundraiser, but there weren't a whole lot of black students. He was one of the few black students in the 80s in his class, and they sold him uh, as for the fundraiser. It was called Slave for a Day, and whoever bid on him 
would be his owner for the day. He would have to serve them. Uh, and as far as further deals, details, uh, I would recommend reading his story. I don't want to misspeak. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that comes to mind when I've been writing questions for this or kind of meditating on this whole culture of racism perpetuated by teachers and students at ACS is that it seems like a very, very difficult thing to understand as a child or as a youth. And then as you get older, you look back on it and you're like, wow, that was, that was extremely messed up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You, when, when I attended ACS, Anchorage Christian schools, I, I already had perceptions of myself as a Filipino man. I know growing up that, you know, I never, I never thought it was cool to be, to be me. I would, wouldn't even go by my middle name. No one knew what my middle name was because in, in Filipino culture, in, at least in Tagalog Filipino culture, um, your middle name is your mother's maiden name. So mine was Joshua Albeza Branstetter. Albeza is my Tagalog name, and I would I would never I would never tell anyone it. Um, I used to I used to like use it as as like passwords or things for because mm -hmm. I back then which I don't anymore in case anyone's listening to this <laughs> but, um, but I used to use it back then because it's like I'm never going to tell anyone this and I'm never going to share it I wasn't proud of my culture I never learned my language even though my mom wanted to teach me even though my my Lola and my Lolo my grandparents wanted to teach me I never learned my language I wanted to be white. I wanted to be what was cool in the movies, in the movies I watched. I wanted to be Indiana Jones. I wanted to be Han Solo, which Han Solo is Harrison Ford and Indiana Jones is Harrison Ford too. So I just wanted to be Harrison Ford. <laughs> and I, I would, one thing I noticed is one, I needed to be whiter. Two, I needed to talk like them, you know, and three, I noticed that they all had thin lips. These heroes had thin lips and I had my mom's Filipino lips. And I would start pulling them in. When I was eight, I just started pulling my lips in and I determined, well, this makes me look a little whiter, so I will just pull my lips in and I will make them thinner. And I conditioned myself to do that because I didn't want to be me. I wanted to be Harrison Ford. I wanted to be cool. And Joshua Albeza Branstetter, Filipino, was not cool. And I still do that today. I can't help it it's out of reflex now because when i was eight year old years old i didn't want to have that and i deeply regret now that i never learned tagalog that i am not bilingual that i don't speak that and i regret how that affected my relationship with my grandparents who have both passed away they passed away last year and i think about how much i lost because i didn't want to be me when I went to ACS, I held those perceptions already and opposed to what I expected, which was excitement to be in a Christian environment, an environment that taught me that that God made us all and Jesus loves all the little children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, mm -hmm. and that I would be accepted. And it said I found an environment that was the first place I was ever called a flip-flop, the first place I was ever called gay slurs, the first place... I ever heard someone 
call me the n-word and it happened to be that it wasn't a student it was my educator i was really shocked because i didn't hear that when i attended public schools i went to public schools for most of my education and then i was homeschooled and i played with the kids in my neighborhood and that didn't happen i didn't experience those slurs targeting me until i went to acs and that really affected me my sense of worth and my sense of place and my sense of identity i'm proud of who i am today but i'm in my 30s now mm -hmm. it took me a long time to realize one that actually wasn't cool and two i regret it and i don't want to be molded by this and three what I do want to be identified with, who I want to be, as Joshua Albeza Branstetter, a Filipino-American man. It's taken me a long time to get there. And a lot of that is, I believe, the fault of educators who told me who I was wasn't cool. How do you think that that affected your relationship with adults or even authority figures? Um, well... That's a good question. I I always wanted to live up to my educator's expectation of me. And so when my coach was saying these words offhandedly, just rolling off the tongue like it's no big deal, I just took it. I laughed at the jokes that were aimed at me. I, I made myself, when I was a kid, I, I would not only I knew that if I would play into those jokes and if I laughed with them and pretended and they were funny to me and that they were cool, that I could gain acceptance. And of course I wanted to be accepted by my peers, but I also wanted to be accepted by my educators, these people who I looked up to. And so that self-deprecation, that demeaning, self-demeaning for acceptance was something that molded my perception of myself in that culture and in society. For a long time, I didn't identify myself as a Filipino-American man. I would say, I'm really three quarters white. And I would always tell people, I'm really three quarters white. My dad's white, my mom's Filipina, but Filipinos are all part Spanish anyway, because so I'm really three quarters white. And that's, I think about that now, and that feels really, feels really problematic that I took 300 years of colonialism and pain and the pain that came with that of no of no choice of the Filipino people and I used that as a way to try to garner more acceptance and to try to spin myself as more being more white that I used that something that's so painful as an escape I know that um, in my career and in my life as an adult I I work a lot with uh, I've worked a lot with indigenous communities. I I've had the honor of working with archaeologists up in uh, like Quinnahawk at the dig there, and with Yupik culture, and then also I've worked with um, language preservers, language preservation in Alutic culture, where there's less than a hundred people that can in the world that can speak the language fluently, and I saw how much pride these people had in their communities and their culture and their history and how strongly they, they identified with being that being who they were and when i started to collaborate and experience 
those perspectives, it made me realize how I didn't have that and I wanted that and that I wanted to, yeah, I wanted to be proud of who I was, but it took me a long time to get there. Do you remember when you did start accepting your heritage? I think it was probably probably four years ago, uh, for just from working with indigenous communities that honestly made me really jealous that I wasn't as proud as my, of my culture and as forward and knowledgeable of it as they were. I saw how their passion and I wanted that. I would film people for interviews and they would just tell, they could go tell the, tell me these stories for hours about growing up in their culture and the efforts they're making to uh, create art or to enrich their communities or to educate people. And I was just, I was just jealous. I was like, I, I want to have that much pride in something that is who I am. I want that. And it was a year ago when I started, and it, it sounds silly saying it, but it was a year ago that I started signing as Joshua Aldeza Brandstetter for everything. When I started using that as my name on forums and on Facebook and social media. And a lot of that is because I, my, uh, my grandparents, they said they passed away last year and I finally started feeling like I was having a connection with them last year when they were taken from me. My grandma, we sent her, the family chose to send her back to the Philippines because of uh, uh, the caregiving resources of certain family members that were living there. We sent them back there. And when we, when they were split up, my grandpa, my Lolo became sick very quickly. And he, if I'm remembering this correctly, I could be wrong. I believe he went into cardiac arrest. Uh, but I remember that he, I was finally connecting with him. I, I felt like I was starting to understand who he was as a person and that this person who I thought was deeply uncool had accomplished so much in his life. And then a month later, a couple of months later, he was in the hospital. And then two weeks later, he was gone. And then my grandma I think I think a month later she was gone and I didn't even get to say goodbye to her because she wasn't here in Alaska anymore and I that's when I was just starting to be really when I was just starting to connect with them and I wish I'd started a long time ago but it was about the last few years that I started deciding hey I'm gonna be who I am and I'm gonna be proud of that and I'm yeah I'm gonna move forward as as a Filipino man. So you mentioned how you started using your middle name and how that was this moment of accepting who you are. Are there any other situations where you really made this, this big effort to kind of be who you are? Well, I, I do a lot of film and photography and Film has always been an amazing outlet for me to explore my identity. And I, I know that's not special. That's for a lot of people. It's such an empathy machine and a way to communicate our personalities and our identities in a way that people can 
simply empathize with instead of judging your intentions right off the bat. And I've always used film as a way to express how I think about my identity, all aspects of that. Um, I started working in film and about, wow, is it maybe five, maybe six years ago, I started picking up my own camera. And yeah, that was a way for me to be like, hey, this is who I am. But even with that, there was still a timidity towards who I was as a Filipino man. And it's taken a while to get there. You know what's really interesting about film, about audio, is that it helps you to be more reflective. You know, you're kind of faced with yourself. You're able to see you how other people see you. Do you feel that, that that's true for you? Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I'm I'm dreading uh getting the review of this podcast and hearing my own voice. Because <laughs> I I absolutely hate hearing my own voice. And and uh, and when I hear it it's like, oh okay, okay, that's it's whatever, it's fine. But I I always wonder what what I'm gonna sound like. And uh I think that is an apprehension, of course, at that at looking inward, at, at listening to myself and wondering, am I going to sound stupid? Am I going to sound, does my voice just sound doofy? <laughs> but <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, so film and audio like this, it is an amazing way at reflecting at our past, reflecting at who we are now. And also it gives us, I believe, a lens to see who we want to be. Um, and that can be a positive or a negative. When I was a kid, I used it as a lens to see who I wanted to be, and that was just someone other than me. But now I'm trying to use film, and I'm trying to view others, other film, as a lens of how I can be better, how I can celebrate myself in a less, far less judgmental way to both express myself and help others to express themselves and just celebrate identity. So much of film to me and what I care about in film is how it can be a lens, an escape, or a means of conveying identity. That's what's important to me. Do you feel like you're a person who has a lot of ambivalence about your identity or as a Filipino man? I I know I did. I did for a long time. Um, I, again, as I would say that I'm really three quarters white, but I would look in the mirror and I would say this, like, I'm really three quarters white, man. I'm really, my dad's white and I'm, I'm Filipino. And that's what I would say to people because I wanted to be accepted into, into these friend groups. And often it felt like I was the only Asian in the group, or I was just the only minority at all in my friend circles. And it, it also felt like I was competing with other minorities. I know we used, my friends and I used to sh shoot movies in the, the backwoods of Eagle River, and they were always just the stupidest war movies <laughs> with where we'd make Kool-Aid and what you always knew someone was gonna get shot if they didn't have any lines of dialogue in the shot 
because that means their mouth is full of Kool-Aid and they're about to spew it out. <laughs> and um and I ended up being the bad guy oftentimes. They they were like, okay, we need a who's who are gonna be the 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 antagonists in this scene? And it's like, oh well, it's it's the uh, they would pick the North Koreans and, and it's like, well, Josh will be the North Korean. I'm like, I'm Filipino. It's like, we don't care. You, you, you're the, the closest thing to fitting the bill. And so I would always have to be this token villain. And I, I remember being relieved that I would get some speaking lines and some good, awesome hero moments because two other. Oh, I'm in a meeting right now, buddy. You got to go. I'm on the record literally <laughs> right now. <laughs> you are going to, this is going to be in the podcast. Uh, one second. One second. Hey, you go play your game, buddy. It's okay. You got the new one, Marvel Avengers. I know, I know. Daddy's in a meeting. Yeah, I'm in a meeting. Thanks. That's fine. Okay. You guys have fun. Cool. Oh, sorry, Cody. No worries. Uh, if that makes the podcast, um, no. But uh, um, so I remember being so relieved that I would, and hopeful that I would get some good lines and some hero moments because two other Asian classmates had uh, asked if they could be a part of the movie, and they were Korean. And turns out they became the villains that day. And I got to be a good guy. And I was so relieved. And so I remember being very torn over over my place and just very confused over how I fit in and just wanting to fit in. When you're a kid, you just want to be cool. You just want to fit in. Mm -hmm. And so I remember I would tell people, hey, I'm really three quarters white. But every morning, I have very curly hair. And back then, I it would really throw out if I let it grew. And I remember when I looked in the mirror every morning, I would spend 45 minutes putting so much gel, so much spray in my hair to try to make it look straighter. So I would tell people, hey, I'm really this. But every morning, my actions would show that I didn't feel that way and I needed to physically change how, how I looked. So as we just heard, you obviously have kids yeah, yeah do you feel like you take any precautions now with your kids to safeguard them from experiencing what you and so many others did at acs well for one thing they're never going to that school i i i'm, I'm never sending them to that school absolutely not i'm not let with all the stories that have come out with all the stories that have come out I never, ever want them to be in an environment that can foster that kind of discrimination and that kind of abuse and not only foster it, but when it's brought to light, do nothing to address it on a systemic level, nothing to address it in policy, in any kind of regulatory restrictive action that can prevent it, that environment from from growing and be and and affecting how children see themselves. And I don't think it's just an ACS problem. I don't think it's just an Anchorage Christian school problem. I think private schools, private Christian schools, it seems like many of them have unfortunately created structures 
where accountability just doesn't exist, where there are no structures to report this, because the people that you would report to, it turns out are often the perpetrators. And that's because there's they're not being certified, they're not being vetted, they're not I don't even know if they have degrees. I don't think I don't think a lot of my educators had degrees. I think my English teacher, she had a degree. She was great. Um, and and why but, why would you think that that they didn't have degrees? Um, well, because there are unfortunately no policies that require certification or background checks for teachers within the private school system. It's very it's very broad, broadly defined. What is what can be. Uh, school environment, at least in Alaska. I don't know if this is the case in, in other states, but the certification system for someone to become a private t a teacher in a private education system is just very lax. There isn't a background check. There isn't a certification system. And I believe in, in certain states, I believe California is doing that now for charter schools, but Alaska doesn't. Hmm. And if that is the case, which it is, then if you do not have those rules for a higher standard, we cannot expect these institutions to just hold who they hire to a higher standard, because why should they? Why would they have to? There's nothing requiring them on a legal level to do that. So we shouldn't be surprised when they're cutting corners or when they are just hiring your son which is what we were, the cases that we had. We had the coach was the son of one of the upper administration, either the administrator or the principal when I was, when I was a student there was the father of my coach. The current, the current head pastor of the parent church of Anchorage Christian Schools, Ron Hoffman, he, he was a coach and he was named in a lot of those, in, in a lot of the uh, testimonies. He's the head pastor now. His son his son is either, I believe, the executive director of, I think, the bus ministry, but one of the youth ministries, one of the one of the younger group ministries. And his son-in-law is also in a similar position of authority. And so we have these this system where people are being hired because they're family, not because they were are the best person for the job necessarily, or not because they were certified, because they weren't, because they don't have to be, because the state doesn't doesn't require them to. So they, they weren't, so they didn't have to. So they saved money and just hired someone in-house. And because we don't have those regulations, that's the kind of environment we're getting, and it isn't surprising. So as a father of two children who I want to have a good education, who I want to be treated well, I want them to be in an environment where I do know that the teachers don't have a record of abusing kids or a record of being racially discriminatory. And I want them to go to a school where if that does happen, students can report. I know that in the public school system, there is a system by which you can report abuse or racial discrimination. You can go on the ASD website, the Anchorage School District website, and there's a step-by-step -step process over the forms to fill out, how to approach the principal, and then how to approach the administration beyond that point to get something taken care of. 
but that's for the public school system and it doesn't exist for private schools. If I had spoken up, and I wish I had, if I had spoken up when the things that happened to me happened to me, who would I have gone to? The administrator or the principal? Because one of them was the father of the man who was doing these things. What do you think would have happened if you would have spoken up back then? I cannot speak to what exactly would have happened to me, but I can speak to what others have accounted to me. And what I've seen from the testimonies that have been shared with me is that there were parents, there was a, there was a child, a student who was slapped by his coach, a black student who was slapped by his coach in the locker room during a basketball game because he was upset about the game and didn't want to play anymore. And when he reported it and his parent, let me see, his parent, I believe, filed a letter. And I, in, I believe in that case, I, I want to make sure this is accurate. Um, make sure I'm not getting this cross with the other story of abuse. Um, there was a story where a child was physically abused by his coach. The parent complained, filed a police report. And I believe that coach had to pay maybe a fine but nothing else happened. That coach continued to work there. Hmm. In fact, that coach kicked those students off of the basketball team for the rest of the season. And that coach was also one of the people who spoke in student chapel at ACS and called out the students who spoke out as being unforgiving. So parents have complained. And in the past, there are cases of parents sending letters to the administration saying, I'm not happy with this treatment of my child. I want something done about it. But those people, those coaches remain in employment. Or in the case of Ron Hoffman, who was directly named in one of the cases of physical abuse, he is now the head pastor of the church. There is no accountability. And that is the issue. The coach who called was the first person to call me the N-word. The coach who threw so many, threw racial slurs at other students and is now, it seems, potentially named in other abuse allegations. As far as I know, he's still working there. I have heard nothing official from the church that they have taken, from the school church, they're the same thing, that they have taken any actions of accountability to address these things. And when that's the case, I mean, how are we supposed to have confidence in the, how are students, minority students, black students, BIPOC students supposed to have any confidence in private educational systems, in churches, when, when parents and students say, hey, this is wrong, mm -hmm. nothing actually happens. No accountability is, is, no one's held accountable. No one is removed from those positions of authority over children. And in fact, many of them are now promoted how are we supposed to have confidence on this in this? And when that's the case, these organizations shouldn't be surprised when students one speak out, but when these people grow up and we go on to have successful careers and build our own families that we have want to have nothing to do with this, mm -hmm. with these organizations. Why would we? I know that um in response to the complaints that have come come out, minority families, prominent minority families of Anchorage Baptist Temple who of course, have 
kids there too, because the church and the school are very closely tied. These minority families, prominent ones have said, we want to meet. We want to meet with the head pastor, Ron Hoffman, and we want to meet with the students, the alumni, and have a conversation about how we can make things better, how we can move forward, how we can reform things. And Ron Hoffman said, I don't want to meet. Hmm. And so we've been told, the students that have spoken up have been told that we just have an agenda, we're, we're Marxists or Democrats or, or, or gay, and that's a, so, so they don't like the church because of all these, these things, these other things, instead of actually addressing our concerns. And our argument is, if we can just reform these things to create a system of accountability, that, that, that's all people really want, that these the assurance that these things won't happen anymore. And if it doesn't, don't be surprised that minority families no longer want to send their kids there, no longer want to be a part of that church. And part of the church's platform is the idea of saving people from eternal damnation when they pass away, when they die, from, from going to hell. Uh, that's like part of the church's platform is we don't want you to go to hell. We want to save you. But when black students, when Pacific Islander students, when Asian students, indigenous students, when we're treated like this and we want to have nothing to do with the church after, the church is pushing these groups away. You're pushing students away. And if you think that the most important thing in the world that you can do with your time is try to help people come to Jesus, learn about God and fall in love with God and want to go to heaven and not go to hell, addressing discrimination, addressing abuse that is pushing minority students away from your community should be a very small thing to resolve. If the biggest, most important thing in the world to you is getting kids saved so they can go to heaven, why can you not address, why can't it? you just address racism, abuse, and discrimination within your community? That should not be as big of a deal as saving these kids. Mm -hmm. But you're pushing them away when you treat them this way, when you make them feel less than, when you physically abuse them. You're pushing them away. Do you consider yourself a religious person now? I... My relationship with religion and with faith is something that's very personal to me and it is something that's very complex for a lot of people but what i can tell you is this that the platform of faith and religion and christianity as it was offered to me when i was a teenager is something i don't ever want to go back to i don't want to be a part of the church I don't want to be in that system. I don't want to be in a system that treated something that's supposed to be very personal and about a relationship and is supposed to be uplifting and empowering and help people to find something pure and good. I don't like how it was seen as a business and how it was seen as a means of molding politics and teaching us how to vote and teaching us what to buy and what what businesses to to go to and what people to hate 
I don't want to have anything to do with that. I do consider myself still a man of faith, but I don't ever want to consider myself a man of the church. Because that was tainted. That was the environment that did all this to me. Mm -hmm. I have one question before another question about staff um, that I wrote down as you were talking. And it is about the time a coach called you the N-word. If you don't mind explaining that situation, what happened there? Yeah, um, absolutely. That story was accounted in the ADN, if anyone's read it. But if not, it was my freshman year at ACS. It was my first season, um, and it was my first season in track and field. I signed up for sports because I wanted to make friends. And so that would have been the spring of 2002. I hadn't done any sports before, and I thought this was a good idea, and that I could make some friends, and it's exercise, and we get to go on trips. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was my first time trying the high jump. It's, I was trying a bunch of different things to try to see where I could fit in. And I remember trying the high jump during practice. I was 14 and I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> I ran and I jumped over the bar and I remember kicking it with, kicking it with the back of my foot, knocking the bar over. And I remember my coach saying, uh, come on, uh, try again, Branstetter, kick your legs out, just kick your legs out. And I kept trying and I kept trying and I kept hitting the bar, knocking it over. And I tried one more time and I almost cleared the bar. I kicked my legs out, but I still knocked it over. And that's when I heard it. I heard my coach say, can't you jump any higher, Brandsetter? I thought you had a little N-word in you. And I remember hearing the laughter and that people were chuckling and laughing at me. And I, yeah, I never forgot that. That was the first time anyone had ever called me the N-word. Who was laughing? Coach. I think there were other students there. Maybe there were other adults too. I don't know. I don't remember who exactly was there laughing, but I remember how it felt. Do you know of any ACS staff that have since, or in the past, showed any remorse? Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've confronted my educators and talk to them, the ones that called me names, and that said things that were just inappropriate to me or to other people. And what I've been told was things like it was a different time, or I thought I was just one of the kids, or yeah, looking back at that, maybe that was a little too much, or I thought it was just a joke. Or we all thought it was funny. But what I said to them and 
what I still stand by and I say to anyone now that's listening is we were kids. You were our educators. I was learning from you what was okay, what was not okay, where I fit in, what my place is, what to think of myself, who I am, what my value was, what my... And it was your job to set the bar, and that's the bar you set. Mm-hmm. And it's good to hear people say that it wasn't okay. And it's important that we have these conversations where people can apologize. But what's most important is how we can change the policies that mold these environments, the rules within these environments, so that these things cannot happen again. Mm -hmm. It's not about a bad actor. It's about a system and systemic issues that we can address so that we don't have to play whack-a-mole with racism, because that's a battle that'll never end. I don't have the energy for that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to play whack-a-mole till I'm old and withered trying to stop people from mistreating BIPOC children. It's impossible. But if we just set the ground rules and structures within these environments so minority kids can feel like they can speak up, like they have someone to go to, like they can file something, and there is actual oversight, there is actual accountability, that's what we need. The conversations that I've had with the people, students and educators that mistreated me have been really, really important and significant to me. But I really want to make sure as a parent, I think about my kids. And I think about there's probably a kid in there, school started, so there's probably a kid in there right now who maybe thinks they're not white enough, maybe thinks their lips are too big, maybe thinks it's not cool to be who they are, and they're not Harrison Ford enough. (laughs) And maybe doesn't really know where they fit in or what their identity is. I think about those kids that probably feel right now the way I felt back then. And I want to make sure they have someone. I want to make sure they have somewhere to go to. If someone tells them they're less than, if someone laughs at who they are, if someone in any way tries to diminish them or mistreat them, I want to make sure they have someone they can go to and they feel empowered. But better yet, I want to make sure it never happens to begin with. Mm-hmm. So these conversations that you've had with certain staff that you said have been remorseful, what are those conversations like? If you can maybe pick one and explain how it went. Well, it hasn't been that way across the board. Um, So I don't think one can really sum it up. I know that the head pastor of ABT has outright dismissed our uh, this pretty much any stu- the students that have come forward because this isn't I, I'm just a student there's a lot of students there's over 180 stories now and I know the head pastor Ron Hoffman 
gave a sermon right after the initial stories came out saying some Bible verse and saying that don't listen to fools. So he was just calling 120 stories at the time, 120 students saying they were just fools, that the congregation should not listen to this, should stay off of Facebook. And as we know from the minority families that, as I know, and other students from the minority families that have come forward, it was a dismissal. He dismissed a meeting with them. And this is someone who has an incredible responsibility to represent the church, to represent what should be such a force for healing and a force for honesty, authenticity, accountability within our community, especially at this time. And instead, he's chosen to diminish these voices, to say that these students have an agenda, that they just are angry and they'll say anything to question the sincerity and the honesty of these stories is abhorrent and disappointing. There are 180 stories and to say that this is all part of an agenda or that people are just angry or that they're all fools is incredibly disappointing when the church could be such a force for healing right now and reform. Um, that that is one case. There are other people I've spoken to who have said I'm I'm just sorry, and I appreciate that. I I I, I am disappointed though that that isn't the case across the board. I, it's really disappointing that some people who are in positions of authority today have chosen to ignore this pain instead of trying to address it and find a way forward. So I have one more question for you. If you could kind of orchestrate an ideal outcome to all of this, what would it look like? I think I can't speak for every student. I can only speak for myself, but I know that as, as a father, as a Filipino man, as a former private school student, and as a member of this Alaskan community that deeply loves this community. Anchorage is one of the most diverse communities in the nation. I think we're the most diverse. We have over 100 languages in our school system, in the Anchorage School District. So that means there's more that aren't that we have 27 of the top 30 most diverse schools in the US. I love this community. And I think about kids that might be in the private school system right now that might be confused, might not be sure where they fit in. For me personally, I want them to feel like they have a support system, that they have advocacy, the advocacy that I didn't. I want them to be treated correctly. I want them to be treated equally. And I want systems of accountability that can ensure that when something wrong happens, students actually have somewhere to go to because they don't right now. And that is a shame that our public school system 
has these structures of accountability and our private school system doesn't. I can't speak for every student that's come forward. I can't speak for the people that are organizing some of these, like some of the stuff that like the Instagram platform, that's an amazing thing. And I love how that creates a voice for students. But for me personally, I really just want students, BIPOC kids in our community to feel like they're not alone, to feel like they have someone to go to and to feel like there's someone that cares about their voice and is going to stand up for them. I don't want them to feel diminished because of the color of their skin. And I want to make sure we can hold systems accountable when they do mistreat students, when they do diminish minorities in our community. The story of Anchorage is the story of diversity, and I want us to celebrate that, and I want us to be the best community we can, and Anchorage cannot be the best community it can when one of the most influential institutions within that community is mistreating minority students within its walls with no repercussions and with no accountability. That has to change. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Thanks to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Serpent Venture, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives for their support at the company man level. This conversation was written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.